All right, well, we're there in Isaiah 52, and uh, we're getting close to the end of Isaiah, and that's good. Tonight, uh, I don't really have an outline for you. Uh, There's just a lot of interesting things in this chapter, so I think we're just going to read through the chapter, and we'll make application as we go along, and uh, we'll learn the chapter together. If you look at verse 1 there of chapter 2, it says, Awake, awake. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Now, if you remember from last week in chapter 1, we saw that that phrase, awake, awake, was used twice in the chapter. And I want you to notice something about that. If you flip your page, one page back uh, to verse uh, 9 of chapter 51, uh, we saw the first time that Isaiah said, awake, awake, uh, within these couple of chapters here. In Isaiah 51, 9, notice what he says. He says, awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. So the first time that he says, awake, Isaiah is basically uh, asking God uh, to awake to their need, to wake up to the fact that they need help. He's asking God to kind of, hey, you know, pay attention to what's going on uh, to your people. And he says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. But I want you to notice in, in Isaiah 52 and verse 1, the third time and the last time that he says it, he's not asking God to wake up, but he's asking God's people to wake up. Notice verse 1, he says, awake, awake, put on thy strength. Now in, verse, in, in chapter 51 he said, O arm of the Lord, but in chapter 52 he says, O Zion. So he's talking to God's people and he's asking them to kind of wake up and he's trying to uh, get them to be ready. Uh, look at verse 1 there again, he says, awake, awake. And by the way, if you've ever seen uh, like literature... That comes from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Who's ever seen the Jehovah's Witness magazine that's called Awake? This is the reference that they're making uh, to that magazine. Obviously, we don't condone the magazine. It's full of heresy, but you know, just kind of an interesting thing there. If you ever see that Awake, um, they, get, they get that from Isaiah 51 and Isaiah 52. But notice verse 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments. And I want you to notice this phrase. O Jerusalem... The holy city. Now, you got to understand something. When you're, when you're looking at prophecy, and especially books of prophets like Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, stuff like that, when you're going into, into prophetic type things, you got to understand, sometimes it's dealing with just, you know, what's going on at the time of Isaiah. Sometimes it's dealing with future events, and sometimes it's dealing with both. Sometimes it's a reference to what's going on right then, and it's also a reference to things that are going to happen in the future. Now today, a lot of people will refer to Jerusalem as the holy city, and you may go back to Isaiah 52 and verse 1 and say, oh, well, here, uh, you know, Isaiah calls Jerusalem the holy city, but you've got to understand that I believe that this is actually a reference to a future event of a city that has not yet come called New Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Today, the Bible does not call the Jerusalem that now is a holy city. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 52, but go with me to the book of Revelation. Let me show you uh, a couple of things. And, you know, you, we, we need to make sure that we allow the Bible to be the authority. And today, many Christians will, will refer to Jerusalem as the holy city. And many Christians will go to Jerusalem and, and, and they want to visit the holy city. And I'm not against people going to Jerusalem. I think, I, mean, I think it'd be cool to go to Jerusalem and see where the Lord Jesus Christ walked and where all the events of the Bible, uh, many of the events of the Bible took place. But I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, the Bible says this, Revelation chapter number 11 and verse 8. And do me a favor, when you get to the book of Revelation, put your bulletin or a bookmark or uh, something there because we're going to leave it, but we're going to come right back to it, okay? In Re- Revelation chapter number 11 
Look at verse number 8. The Bible says this, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city. Now notice what he calls it, okay? Which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And you say, well, what, what great city is he talking about? Notice what he says, Where also our Lord was crucified. Now we know that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. So here you've got to understand. Now, you know, I don't... Like I said, I don't think it's wrong for someone to go to, you know, Jerusalem and go to Israel and look at the sites of the Bible. That's, that's fine. But you've got to understand this. Spiritually, that place is called Sodom and it's called Egypt. That's what the book of Revelation called it. And you've got to understand, it's not about the sites that were there, but it's about the fact of that that city represents a religion that is false. Go, go to 1 John chapter number 2. You're in the book of Revelation. If you just go backwards, you're going to go past the book of Jude into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Let me just show you one verse. Because today many Christians will think that Judaism and Christianity are basically the same religion. In fact, some people will refer to Christianity or they'll try to refer to all of us together and they'll say, oh, they are are Judeo-Christians. Who's ever heard that term before? You know, a lot of politicians will say, I'm a Judeo-Christian. But you got to understand this, okay? Judaism of today and Christianity cannot, do not, will never go hand in hand. You say, well, how can that be? 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 22. Notice what the Bible says. 1 John 2, 22. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you study that term out, Christ in Scripture, if you go back to the book of John, you will find that the Bible defines the word Christ as Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. So here's what he's asking. He's saying, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Messiah? Okay, now here's what you got to understand. In order to deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you've got to believe that there is a Messiah and it's not Christ. Does that make sense? Now look, there's only one religion in the world that believes that there's a Messiah, that there is a Christ, but it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is Christ? Now notice what the Bible says. He is anti-Christ. Now, the word anti means you're, you're against, you're, you're on opposite ends, you're, you're going different directions. And here he's saying, when someone denies that Jesus is Christ, they're not Judeo-Christians. In fact, they're anti-Christian, they're anti-Christ that denieth the Father and the Son. So you got to understand, when the Bible talks about the holy city Jerusalem, there is a holy city Jerusalem that is coming, but it's not the Jerusalem that now is. The city that now is, is called, it's spiritually Sodom, it's spiritually uh, Gomorrah, it's spiritually not uh, uh, a city that we would call holy. Go back to Isaiah 52. Keep your finger in Revelation, because we're going to come back to it. But go to Isaiah 52. Notice what it says in verse 1, and let me show you uh, one reason why I believe the reference is actually to New Jerusalem. Isaiah 52 and verse 1, the Bible says, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Now notice what he says, the holy city, for henceforth, the word henceforth means from now on shall no more uh, come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. So he says, when the city... Jerusalem is holy. From then on, the uncircumcised and the unclean aren't going to come in. Look at verse 2. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now, keep in mind that at the time of Isaiah's writing, the Babylonians, basically, he is 
talking about the fact that the Babylonians are going to come, put them in bondage, they're going to be set captive. There is a, a uh, you know, physical application to this passage referring to the fact that one day the Babylonian, the uncircumcised, will no longer come and will no longer hold them captive. But I do believe there's a foreseeing here of the new Jerusalem, which one day the unclean will not uh, come into. Uh, henceforth, there shall no more come into the, the uncircumcised and unclean. Let me show it to you. Can you get back to Revelation 21, look at, or back to Revelation, but go to chapter 21, and look at verse number 1, all right? Revelation 21 and verse 1. Revelation 21 and verse 1 uh, talks about this city, New Jerusalem, this city that is going to come out uh, from heaven. Let's read about it. Revelation chapter 21, look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, and I, John, saw the holy city. Now remember, Isaiah talked about the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, John makes the same reference. He said, I saw the holy city, and he called it New Jerusalem, because it's not the Jerusalem that's spiritually Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament, we've been studying in 1 Samuel on Wednesday night, that in the Old Testament, they had the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God, represented the presence of God. And the Ark was kept in the tabernacle. If you remember, they had the tabernacle that was made out of tents. And wherever the Ark went, the tabernacle went. And wherever the Ark settled, the tabernacle settled. And wherever the tabernacle settled, the tribes of Israel were supposed to camp around. And they had an actual, you know, uh, a system as to where they were supposed to go. They were supposed to be camped around the tabernacle. And the picture was that God was in the center of His people and that they had the presence of God. Well, here we're told that the new Jerusalem is basically taking the place of that tabernacle and it will come down from heaven and it will show that God Himself shall be with them and be their God. It will represent the fact that God is with us. It will literally be the presence of God because God will literally dwell with men. Look at verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Isn't that a good, doesn't that sound like a good day? And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That'll be a great day. Look at verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Can you imagine the day? No more night, no more pain, no more death. He says, I make all things new. And he said unto me, right, and he literally made all things new. Because he, he just said, you know, the old heaven, the old earth were passed away. He said, a new heaven, a new earth. He said, a new Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem. He said, I make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. Skip down to verse 23 for sake of time. But look at verse 23. And the city, now the city is referring to new Jerusalem. He says, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light 
of it. And if, and if you study that term out, the nations, you'll find that it's used interchangeably with the idea of Gentiles. And he's just basically talking about people that are saved will walk in the light of that new, of that city and God and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Look at verse 27. Skip down to verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it. Enter into what? Into the city, New Jerusalem. And there shall no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So notice, in Revelation 21, we're, talk, we're told about this holy city. And nothing that defiles and nothing that worketh abomination is going to come into this city. And in Isaiah 52, we are told of a holy city, Jerusalem. And he said that from henceforth, there shall no more come into the, the uncircumcised and the unclean. So maybe a reference to this coming uh, new Jerusalem. Go back to Isaiah 52. Uh, let's, let's read verse number 3. Isaiah 52 and verse 3. Notice what it says. For thus saith the Lord. Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye have redeemed, and ye shall be redeemed without money. We'll come back to that verse later. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord. Now I want you to notice this last little phrase there. My name continually Every day is blasphemed. Now, here's what's going on. Just, just like we've been studying in 1 Samuel, they, the, the, the people, the enemies of God, in this case the Babylonians, in 1 Samuel it was the Philistines, because they were able to overcome the Hebrews. They were able to overcome uh, the nation and beat, and beat them in a war and take them captive. Because of that, they believed that their gods were stronger than the God of the nation of Israel. You remember in 1 Samuel, the, they, they set the ark next to Dagon and then God shows them up, you know. But here, because the nation is going to go into captivity, the Babylonians are going to be blaspheming God and basically mocking God. Because the word blaspheme means to provoke, to abhor, to speak as worthless, to despise. So they're basically going to be saying like, you know, your God couldn't save you and your God is weak. They'll be blaspheming the name of God. Notice a verse number six. Therefore, my people. Now, here's what he's saying. The world is going to blaspheme the name of God. But he says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. So here's what he's contrasting. He's saying, the world, they blaspheme the name of God. They, you know, take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, right? Exodus 27 says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's the third, command, uh, the third commandment from the Ten Commandments. And he says, that's what the world does. But he says, my people shall know my name. And here's what you got to understand. And I, I just want to make this application. As Christians, we ought to be very careful how we use and how we treat the name of the Lord uh, and the name of God. You know, today, the, the, I mean, let's, let's go to it. Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter 20. You know Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, right? You, you, you've read that before. But let's look at verse 7. Exodus chapter number 20. In verse number 7. I can't tell the difference. So, no, <laughs> these two drinks, these two waters, they taste exactly the same. One is um, generic water, and one is... Um, 
name brand water. Did you ever think we'd come to the day where we talk about generic water? <laughs> That's uh, interesting. But anyway, I don't know why we're talking about that. Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 7. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 7. Notice what it says. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Today, you know, look, the, world is, the world's going to just blaspheme the name of God. You've heard it. If you're out at work or kids out in school, you, people will take the name of God. But as Christians, we ought to be very reverent when we use the name of God. And here's the word vain, when he says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, the word vain means empty or with no reason. Listen, every time the word God comes out of your mouth, there ought to be a reason for it. You should be either talking about God to someone or you should be talking to God, you know. But you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't just be going around and you stub your toe somewhere and then, and then you say, you know, oh my God. I mean, that, the, that's taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Excuse me for, you know, for saying it, but I want to just, you know, explain to you. The Bible says we got to be very careful. And sometimes people will do this. They'll say, well, I won't say, you know, oh my God, but they'll say, I'll just say, oh my gosh. Okay, and gosh is a euphemism. If you, if you look, I, I looked up the definition of euphemism in the dictionary. Here's the definition of euphemism. A mild or indirect word or expression substituting one considered to be too harsh or blunt when referring to something unpleasant or embarrassing. So basically, instead of saying, you know, a Christian, I mean, could you imagine a Christian just like being upset and just saying, you know, Jesus Christ. I mean, we would think like, whoa, but here's what they'll say, jeez. Well, guess what? That's just a euphemism for, what, for the name of the Lord. And it's basically just like Christian cursing, right? You know, it's just a little milder, not as, not as harsh. But listen, we ought to take the name of the Lord and be very reverent. Don't, don't you know, call Jesus J.C. Don't call God the man upstairs. Don't say, you know, G.D. Hey, you ought to be very reverent. When you use the name of God. Because here's what he's saying. The world is going to blaspheme God. They're going to blaspheme his name. But we should know the name of the Lord. And we should be very careful uh, when we use the name of God. So if you're in the habit of saying those types of things, stop. You know, stop doing it. And, uh, and correct yourself there. Because it's not good to use the name of God flippantly. Go back to Isaiah 52. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 6 again. Let me show you something else in verse 6. Isaiah 52, verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, there shall know in that day. And I want you to notice the last part of verse 6. And here's a very, uh, very good verse in regards to the inspiration of Scripture. He says, I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. And you got to understand what Isaiah is saying here, because it's God speaking. And, and what God is saying here is that it's not Isaiah speaking. It is God speaking through Isaiah. And it's not Isaiah writing, it is God's words being written down through Isaiah and through uh, the book of Isaiah. And he says, I am he. Now, if you remember, as we've been studying the book of Isaiah, that phrase, I am he, comes up a lot. And it's always in reference to God. And he says, I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. And that's what the scriptures is. You got to understand, people say, oh, the Bible is just written by man. No, no, no. The Bible, it, God used man to speak his words. God used man to pen down his words. But it's not man's words. It's God using man. It's God speaking through Isaiah. Let me, let's, let's look at some references. Go to 2 Peter chapter number 1 in the New Testament. 
Second Peter, if you start from the book of Revelation and go backwards, you have Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter. 2nd Peter chapter number 1, look at verse number 21. Let me just give you some cross-references. This is what we call the inspiration of Scripture. God gave us His, his Word, and He actually spoke His Word. And in 2nd Peter 1.21, we are told exactly how He did this. 2nd Peter 1.21 says this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. And you've got to understand that. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. You've got to get this. Man would not write this book. Man would not write the Bible. Do you understand that? If man wrote a book, you know what it would say? It'd be about the power of positive thinking. It'd be about your best life now. It'd be about how to get rich. It'd be about how to be successful. It'd be about how great you are and how we're just going to help you be a little better. Man would not write the Word of God because you know what this book contains? It, it contains the fact that we are sinners, that we are condemned to hell. I mean, when you read the stories, you think, man, you think David would, you know, would want a book written where he just talks about his adultery? You think, you know, man would want a book where it just talks about the sins of man and how we mess up and how we come short. Man would not write this book. God wrote this book. And the Bible says, for this prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Now notice how it did come. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. See, holy men of God spake the words. You say, well, it's Isaiah speaking, but it's God speaking through Isaiah, let me give you another example. Go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1, if you go towards the beginning of the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter number 1, look at verse number 16. This is the inspiration of Scripture. The Scriptures were inspired by God. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16, the Bible says this, Men and brethren, this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Now notice what it says which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. Because David wrote a lot of the scriptures. You say, well, was it David speaking? No, it was the Holy Ghost speaking. You say, well, I, I, heard, I heard David actually. David was the one that was saying the, the Psalms. David was the one that was saying the words. You know, Isaiah was the one that was speaking. But no, it was the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was the guide to them that took Jesus. And that's what inspiration is. And by the way, and I don't want to preach on the King James Bible tonight. If, you, if you're interested in learning about the King James Bible, we've got a DVD, New World Order Bible versions. It'll, it'll explain to you everything you need to know about the Bible translations and all that. We believe the King James Bible is the inspired and preserved Word of God. Because here's what you got to understand. Most Christians, no one will argue the inspiration of Scripture. They'll all say that it was originally inspired by God. But then they'll say that, you know, we've lost the originals. And as men have translated the Bible, that, it, that we don't have it today. And we don't have... But you, got, you know, think about this. Why would God use man? I mean, sinful man. Isaiah was a sinner. David was a sinner. You know, Peter and Paul, he used sinful man. And he was able, through inspiration, get them to write the right words, but then he wouldn't be able to use man to preserve his word? And if God didn't preserve his word, he, that would be such a major waste of time to over a period of thousands of years to give us the Bible, and then, you know, the next generation that has to, you know, translate it or that has to uh, basically write it over, transcribe it, because, you know, obviously the originals are going to get torn and worn, then, then it would be lost because of man's mistake. The Bible says that it is God's job to preserve His Word. 
And if you believe that God is powerful enough to inspire his word, to use man to give us his word, then you have to believe that he's just as powerful to preserve his word. And the Lord Jesus Christ said that we need every. He said, man shall not live by bread alone. He said, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He didn't say by every thought. He didn't say by every, you know, idea. He didn't say as long as you get the gist. He said, you need every word. So we believe in the inspiration and the preservation of Scripture. And there in Isaiah, you get a good, uh, a good verse on inspiration. Go back to Isaiah 52. Uh, look at verse 7. In verse 7, you get a famous a verse that is quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Let's look at it. Notice what he says, Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Now this, this verse was quoted by the Apostle Paul. Let's look at it. Romans chapter number 10 in the New Testament. Romans chapter 10, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you kept your place in Acts, it's just the next book over. Romans chapter number 10, and it's a reference to the gospel. Let me read for you again, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. If you remember, we won't take the time to do it now, but we've, we've cross, you can cross-reference this uh, quote. You know, the, the, the word good tidings is is quoted in the New Testament as gospel. So it says, that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation. You notice the reference to the gospel, salvation, getting people saved, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Now, are you there in Romans chapter 10? Look at verse 14, okay? Let's begin reading from verse 14. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, we're going to come back to this in a second. And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Now notice what he says. As it is written, he's going to quote Isaiah. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. All right? Now I want you to notice the emphasis on the feet. Okay, notice what he says. How beautiful are the feet. Go keep your finger there in Romans chapter 10. Go back to Isaiah 52. Look what he says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet. I was going to make a joke about feet, but you know, I I think I talked too much about feet uh, before and it was kind of weird. So we won't talk about feet again. But here he's talking about feet and you know, most people wouldn't look at feet and think that they're beautiful. But here's what he here's what you understand. The emphasis when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to good tidings, when it comes to salvation, the emphasis is on the feet because we must go to preach the gospel. That's why he said, go ye therefore into all the world. He said, go and preach the gospel. And he says, if we're going to get people saved, if we're going to bring the good tidings, he said, the, you know, what's the most beautiful part of a soul winner? And he says, those feet that carry the gospel. And then notice what he says. Look at verse 8. There's another thing he emphasizes. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring. So here's what he emphasizes. When he's talking about soul winning, he emphasizes the feet and he emphasizes the voice. Because what is preaching the gospel? It's going and verbally preaching the gospel. See, it's not about passing out tracts. It's not about lifestyle evangelism. 
It's not about standing on a corner with a sign, you know, and, and trying to get people to know that Jesus loves them, okay? It's about going to people, confrontational soul winning. And when we say confrontational, we're not talking about being rude or being mean or being a jerk. It means that we are bringing it to them. We are confronting them with the gospel. We are going to the unbelievers and we're giving them a chance to be saved. And here's how we do it. With our feet we go and with our mouth we preach. That's what he says. Go back to Romans chapter 10. I, I love Romans chapter 10. And verse 14, because he's, he puts it down on the bottom shelf. I mean, he makes it so simple that even a theologian could get it, okay? Notice what he says. Romans 10, look at verse 14. Notice what he says. How then, he says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now remember, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That's what the Bible teaches. Today, people try to get away from that. But listen, you have to call. Now, here's what he says. How is someone going to call on him in whom they have not believed? He said, if they don't believe in Christ, why would they call on Christ? So here's what he's saying. He's saying, if someone's going to call, because that's what we're trying to get them to do, call on Christ. He says, if someone's going to call, then they have to believe. But then he asks this question, and how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? He says, here's what Paul said. Okay, we've got to get them to call to be saved, right? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he says, how are they going to call if they do not believe? But then he says, how are they going to believe on someone that they've never even heard? And people often try to discourage us in soul winning, and they'll try to discourage our evangelism. And here's what they'll say. They'll say, well, you know, I just don't understand. What about all these people in these different countries that have never heard the gospel? Okay, well, here's your answer. Here's your answer for all these people that have never heard the gospel. Paul actually asked the same question. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear? Now, here, get, get, get this. Well, how are they going to believe on someone if they've never even heard of Jesus. And then he says this. He asks this question. How shall they hear without a preacher? See, that's your voice. The preacher needs to go and present the gospel so they can hear the gospel, so they can believe the gospel, so that they can call upon the name of the Savior. Now notice, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Say, why do you guys have this soul winning going on? Why do you have this soul winning marathon? Why are you always trying to get people to go out soul winning and knock doors and preach the gospel? Why? Because how shall they preach except they be sent? There's people all over this country. I mean, I get emails almost every day. People talking about the fact that, oh, you know, I don't have a good church to go to, and I don't have this, and I don't have that. And I'll tell you this. It is hard for people to go soul winning without a church to send them. There's something exciting about showing up on a Saturday morning and just having 20, 25 people here and we're all excited and we get together and we pray and we go out. Because here's what he says. He says, how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them to preach the gospel of peace. And before you start complaining about, well, what about all these people who never heard the gospel? Why don't you go give them the gospel? Because that's what he said. He said, they cannot call on whom they have not believed. They cannot believe on someone they've never heard about. And they cannot hear without a preacher. So he says, send them out with their feet to preach the gospel. That's what it's about. It's about preaching the gospel. It's about getting it out there. It's not lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism has done nothing for America. 
All these liberals want to talk about lifestyle evangelism. We're just going to live right, and we're just going to do right, and I'm just going to be out there on a Saturday morning, not soul winning. I'm just going to be out there, you know, ignoring the Great Commission, mowing my lawn, and my neighbor's going to walk up to me and say, what must I do to be saved? That'll never happen. No one's going to walk up to you and say, I've just been, I was just watching you on Tuesday night as you were taking the trash out. I could just see the Holy Spirit of God on your life. I mean, as you're rolling that trash can out, I just saw the love of God. No one's going to say that to you. But you know what? Hundreds of people get saved as we go out and we knock the door and we ask them, do you know for sure if you died today to go to heaven? No. Would you like to? Yes. Let me show you what the Bible says. And we preach the gospel and we get them saved. And you say, well, I don't think you should stop. Look, this is what the Bible says. You go with your feet, you open your mouth, you preach the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. And if you miss that, you missed it all. The only reason that God left you on this earth, the only reason he didn't kill you immediately after your salvation, because he left you to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why we're here. So preaching the gospel has to do with going, has to go with speaking. Look at Isaiah 52, 8 again. Thy watchmen, and Ezekiel, he refers to the watchmen also in an idea of soul winning. I think Brother Al just preached on that on Saturday morning. The watchmen, notice, shall lift up the voice. With the voice together they shall sing. Now, let's uh, shift gears here a little bit. Look at verse 8 again. Look at the last part of verse 8. For they shall see, do you see this phrase? They shall see eye to eye. That's a famous phrase that we use in our, you know, a commonly used phrase. People talk about, you know, we need to see eye to eye on this issue. And that phrase actually came from the book of Isaiah 52 and verse 8. And I don't know that you realize this, or maybe you do, or maybe you don't, but the King James Bible, our 1611 King James Bible, has, has had such an impact upon the United States of America and England and other English-speaking uh, countries that... A lot of common phrases that people, worldly people today, are, are using a lot of phrases that came from the Word of God, like this phrase, see eye to eye. Every time your boss says to you, we got to have a meeting, we got to talk about this, we got to see eye to eye, he doesn't know he's quoting Isaiah 52 8, but it came from the Word of God. Let me give you some phrase. I, I, I did some research, and um, let me give you some um, phrases, some commonly used phrases in America today that came from the Bible, okay? The blind leading the blind came from Luke chapter 6. By the skin of your teeth, Job 19. A broken heart, Psalm 34. Can a leopard change his spots, Jeremiah 13. Cast the first stone, John 8. A drop in a bucket, Isaiah 40. Eat, drink, and be merry, Ecclesiastes 8. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Matthew 5. Fallen from grace, Galatians 5. Fly in the ointment, Ecclesiastes 10. For everything there is a season, Ecclesiastes 3. Forbidden fruit was taken from uh, Genesis chapter 3. Go the extra mile, taken from Matthew chapter 5. Good Samaritan, taken from uh, Luke chapter 10. How the mighty have fallen, 2 Samuel chapter 1. The love of money is the root of all evil, 1 Timothy 6. The powers that be, Romans 13. Rise and shine, Isaiah chapter 60. The root of the matter, Job 19. Scapegoats, taken from Leviticus 16. Signs of the time, Matthew 16. Straight and narrow, Matthew 7. Twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15. Wits end, Psalm 107. Wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew chapter 7. And the writing on the wall, Daniel chapter 5. All those came from the Word of God. And, and we use those today. I mean, often people say, oh, they, he saw the writing on the wall. And they're talking about the fact that they knew something bad was coming. But I was taken from the Word of God. So a lot of phrases. And there in Isaiah, we see one where he says, eye to eye, taken from uh, the Word of God. Look at verse 9. 
Isaiah 52, verse 9. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye. Go out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessel of the Lord. Verse 12. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you. I like this verse. For the Lord will go before you, That's talking about he will go in front of you, and the God of Israel will be your rear ward. The word, you know, R-E-R-E-W-A-R-D is our word, rear ward, the way we would say rear ward today, which is a reference to the back. I just like that verse because he says, God's going to go before you, and God's going to go behind you. God, you know, God, God is not, he's not a man. He's everywhere. And he says, when you go out to battle, when you go out, whatever you're doing, you know, when you're out sowing, people say, I'm, I can't, I'm so scared out sowing. I'm going to go talk to people I don't know. Hey, God will go before you and God will go behind you. He will go before you and he will be your rear ward. And I, I like that. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Now, in verse 13, we kind of shift a little bit, and we're going to begin to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we actually begin to prepare for chapter 53, and we'll, we'll do chapter 53 next week, but, but look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted. Okay, now he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll prove that to you in a second. But he talks about the fact that the Lord is going to be exalted. The word exalted means he's going to be lifted up and extolled. That word means uh, to, he's going to be praised. He's going to be, uh, 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 you know, given a lot of uh, uh, good things said about him enthusiastically. And notice what it says, and very, and very high. Now here's what you got to understand, okay? In the Bible and in the economy of God, there's this principle that in order to go up, Because that's what we all want. Our human nature is to want to be lifted up. We all want glory. We all want people to know who we are and know our names. And that, of course, that's pride partly, but, you know, it's something that's in us. We all want to be the best at whatever we do. You want to be the best worker, and you ought to be the best worker. You know, you want to be the best at whatever you do. But here's here's what the world teaches. The world teaches that in order to be the best, you got to, you know, climb over people, right? It's a dog-eat-dog world. That that one didn't come from the Bible, I don't think. But, you know, it's, it's it's, you just kind of have to be vicious to get ahead. But the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible says, if you want to go up, you got to go down. He says, if you want to be lifted up, then just humble yourself. Notice what he says. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Look at verse 14. As many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And that's a reference, that's a reference to, to Jesus and his death. Because Isaiah 53, probably the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, and it's all about the death and the crucifixion of Christ. And this, the, the end of this chapter is kind of preparing us for that chapter. But he, talk, he, says, he says he's going to be lifted very high. And then verse 14, he talks about the fact that people were uh, astonished. It means they were astonished. They were astonished at what? At his visage. The word visage is referring to his face. They were astonished at his visage was so marred. The word marred means it was, it was uh, you know, just destroyed. It was, it was torn apart. And here's what he's saying. When the Lord Jesus Christ was beaten, remember, it talks about the fact that they covered his face and they would, they would buffet him, you know, they would hit him, and then they would say, you know, prophesy who hit you. And here's what it says. When he was crucified, 
he was so beaten that people looked at his face and they were astonished and that his visage was so marred more than any man. I mean, it was terrible. It's not like these movies that you like to watch where Jesus, you know, was like, looks like Leonardo DiCaprio or something, you know. I mean, when he was beaten, it was bad. Okay, it's not like your little crucifix that you have and Jesus looks all nice and he's got like a little trail of blood just kind of coming down his forehead. No, it was a bad thing. But here's what the Bible says. He was lifted up, but before he was lifted, before he is lifted, he was brought down. Go with me to the book of Philippians. We're, we're almost done tonight. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to go to Philippians. We're going to go to Matthew. We'll come back to Isaiah. We'll be done, all right? Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse number 5. See, in God's economy... To go up, you got to go down. And you'll find that all throughout the Bible. But let me, let me give you one example. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He wants you to think like Christ. And, and by the way, that's the key. Sometimes people come to church and their lives are so messed up and they got so many issues and so many things that they're struggling with. And the key is this. Romans says this. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The only way your life will ever be transformed is if you stop thinking the way you think. Because the way you think got you to where you're at. And that's not good, okay? You messed up, you know? I messed up. I mean, we all mess up. Our minds are corrupt. But he says, if, you are, if your mind will be renewed, God says, I can transform you. And here he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what, what do you want, how do you want me to think? Look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, the modern Bible versions change that to say that he didn't think he could be equal with God. Okay, that's not what it says. It doesn't say that Jesus could not be equal to God. It says that he did not think it robbery. He didn't think it was wrong. He wasn't stealing from God when he made himself equal with God. Why? Because he was God. So it says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, now, understand what he's saying. He said, I want you to think like Christ thinks. He said, I want this mind to be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what? What do you want me to think? Here's what he says. Jesus, being in the form of God, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, the God who created the universe, God who created you, the God that said, let there be light, the God that parted the Red Sea, the God that brought down the walls of Jericho, the Lord Jesus Christ, in him dwelleth the the Godhead bodily, God in the flesh. Notice verse 7, made himself made himself of no reputation. But he made himself of no reputation. See, Jesus wasn't trying to get a name for himself. Jesus wasn't trying to be famous. And we, we got to just really think about these things sometimes. And we got to think about the way that our minds work. You know, and every once in a while, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to myself. As a pastor, I've got to check myself to remember, I'm not trying to build the best, you know, the biggest church in Sacramento. We're not trying to, I'm not trying to be the next Joel Osteen. We don't want to be, if we want to be like Christ, we'll want to be like that preacher in 1 Samuel, the unknown preacher. Nobody even knew his name, but we know this, that he preached the word. He was faithful. But made himself of no reputation. Notice, and took upon him the form of a servant. God in the flesh became a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, 
He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore? The word wherefore means for this reason. For, for what reason? For the reason that he humbled himself. He lowered himself to the point of death. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and of things in earth and of things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, now understand this, okay, and get this. Because it's easy, you see, this is what's easy to say if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. But here's what we don't get Jesus humbled himself, and he, as far as this is concerned, has not yet been exalted. Because these are future events. See, one day he will come in power and great glory. One day he will judge this world and every knee shall bow and every tongue. But even now, even now, he has not been fully exalted. See, is it enough for you to make yourself of no reputation, to just serve humbly with no recognition, and then to die being unknown and say, it's okay for me to get my reward later? That's what he says. And that's how we ought to live. See, it's not that I want to humble myself so God will later exalt me. No, it's that I want to humble myself so that maybe in this lifetime I'll never be exalted. I'll never be well-known. I'll never be rich. I'll never have all the, the great things of this world. But one day God will reward me. Is it enough that God will reward you someday? Go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Let me just show you one more verse. We'll be done. Matthew 23. And we've got to realize, because look, as, as believers who are living in this world every day, Every day we're rubbing shoulders with people. And guess what this world talks about? They talk about the next, you know, iPhone. And they talk about cars. And they talk about houses. And they talk about cruises. And they talk about vacations. There's nothing sinful with any of those things. I'm not preaching, you know, that you shouldn't have a nice house and all those things. But listen to me. This world wants us to get wrapped up in this world. And if I allow myself, I'm, talking, I'm just saying me personally, maybe, maybe it's not you. I'm just saying me personally, if I allow myself to start walking around my house and just looking at all the things that are wrong with it, and I start thinking, man, i got to fix this and i got to do that, and every once in a while I just have to tell myself, you know what, it doesn't matter. Here's what matters, getting people saved. And I'm not saying don't fix up your house. I mean, we fix up our house. We do, you understand what I'm saying. The, the focus in our life ought to be to bring glory and honor to God. Matthew 23, look at verse 11. Matthew 23, verse 11. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be obeyed. See, now here, here's, here's where the economy of God kicks in. You bring yourself down, and God will exalt you. But if you exalt yourself, God is going to bring you down. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Go back to Isaiah 42, look at verse uh, 14, and, and we'll finish up. Isaiah 4, 52, verse 14. I already showed you this, but I just want you to see it again. Isaiah uh, 52, verse 14. Notice what he says. Because he begins to talk about the, the, the death of Christ. And, and next week in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 is the most well-known chapter in the book of Isaiah. And we'll get into it next week, and we'll deal with all the things about the Lord Jesus. But notice what he says, verse 14. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage, his face, was so marred, disfigured is what that means. It, it, it was so disfigured, it was so destroyed, more than any man, 
and his form more than the sons of men. Can you go back to verse 3? Remember, we read Isaiah 52, 3. I told you we'd come back to it. He begins to talk about the great sacrifice that Christ paid on the cross. And here's what he says about his people. Isaiah 52, 3. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught. He says, you put yourself into bondage for nothing. That's what the word not means, nothing. He says, and ye shall be redeemed. He said, ye shall be redeemed without money, without the things of this world, without the, the things that this world sees. He says, you're going to be redeemed without money. But here's what you got to understand. Because when we go out soul winning and we tell people, you don't have to do anything to be saved. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to repent of your sins. You have to do nothing but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon his name and, and, and you can be saved. And sometimes people say to us, well, that's cheap. I mean, I want to go to church, and I want to go to the confessional booth, and I want to get catechized, and I want to get baptized, and I want to do these things. You know, I want to earn my way to heaven, is what they're saying. But here's what you got to understand. Just because it's free doesn't mean it's cheap. Because it cost Christ, it cost God a huge sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not cheap, but it is free. But it wasn't free to God. It was a great sacrifice. He had to give his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so when he says there, you're going to be redeemed without money, he's saying it's free to you, but it cost him uh, great. Look at verse 15, Isaiah 52, 15, we're done. So shall he sprinkle many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. Remember in, in when we were talking about the holy city in Revelation 21, it referenced the fact that the kings would come to him and bring him honor. He says, the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Let's bow our heads and have a word.